have you ever, if you're anything like me, okay, ever struggled with feelings of insecurity, uh, fears of having your weaknesses exposed? Uh, have you ever struggled with just um, an overwhelming sense of th- there's so much to do, there's so much need in the world today, I'm only one person, what, what impact could I possibly have in the world? It's probably safe to say that uh, most of us, many of us, if not all of us, struggle with those thoughts from time to time. And, and then even recognizing then, if, as believers here, we can recognize, okay, understand what God has called me to. I, I get, I'm, I'm to live on mission. Uh, I understand that the, the task that, that Christ has called me to, go make disciples of all nations, uh, see the gospel, go to the ends of the earth. So we, we can grasp and understand that, but do you ever struggle with, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? How, how can I possibly make a dent in, in the world? And, and thoughts and, and feelings like this can often paralyze us or just cause us to, to throw in, to say, I can't, throw up our hand, I can't do it. And then we do nothing. And yet, regardless of how we even respond, God's mission, Christ's commission to us remains unchanged. Go into the world. Make disciples. Push back against that which is dark and evil. He has given us a mighty, huge task. Spread the knowledge of the glory of God. For those gripped with thoughts, though, such as, how can I make an impact in the world for the glory of God, when, when my heart is gripped by, consumed by fear and insecurity and faithlessness. Um, if, you're, if you're gripped with the thoughts of, um, how can I endure suffering when it feels as though it will crush me? Or how can I be a disciple maker when I feel as though I have actually nothing really to offer? Or how can I endure comfortable and tense com- encounters or conversations with others when I just want to run away? If, if, if your heart is gripped or consumed by, by thoughts like that, then this text is going to be good news to you. It's going to be good news for us. You see, in Judges 6, we're introduced to this new deliverer that, that God raises up. It's a man by the name of Gideon. In fact, over the next three chapters, we're going to be looking at Gideon's story. He's going to be the subject that's in focus. Now, Gideon is uh, this kind of unlikely hero. It's, he's this unlikely deliverer. If you, if, you, if you grasp from when Quinn was reading a little bit of, of, of Gideon's response, he seems like he's kind, of, he's kind of hesitant. He's kind of cowardly. There seems to be some fear and insecurity and weakness. One commentator I read referred to Gideon as the weak, mighty warrior. And yet we're going to see in the life of, of Gideon over the next few chapters and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a trajectory. We're going to see a trajectory in his life from this fearful, timid, and weak individual to, to a courageous, bold, and strong leader. But, and we're going to see God's hand through all of it. Uh, this is not going to be the trajectory Gideon's heading on. It's not going to be Gideon's doing. It's, he was this fearful coward until God got a hold of him. But, but what we're going to see is, is God bringing Gideon to this place of courage. It was going to be a journey for sure in his life, and it was going to be one that was rooted in, in an understanding of God as his peace. 
um, which means that he was seeing God as his place of refuge. That's what we're going to see when we get to verse 24 today. Or we're going to see also with, with, with Gideon that it was this, this trajectory from fear to, to faith or fear to courage. It was also rooted in Gideon being empowered by the Spirit of God, like what we see in verse 34. It's where we'll have to begin. If we're going to move from fear and weakness to, to courage and, and strength with the mission, with what God has called us to be and to do. And so since God is our peace, um, since God has clothed us with his spirit, we can and we should live courageously with hearts that are set on making him known. So, so I want to dig in this morning. So our focus for today is going to be on Gideon's story. And we're going to begin at verse 11. It's where Quinn began the, the text this morning. Uh, but that's not to say that verses 1 through 10 are unimportant. They, they set the context really for what's happening again in the life of Israel. We're seeing the, the cycle that they're finding themselves in throughout the remainder of this book. Uh, in verses 1 through 5, it, it says that they've once again, this is Israel, they've once again done what is evil in the sight of the Lord because of their idolatry and their rebellion against God. They've forgotten him. And so because of that, once again, God hands them over to a pagan nation. This time it's the Midianites. They're described in these first few verses as this like this, this swarm of locusts who swarm into the land. They devour all the crops that the Israelites are planting. They take everything from them, and then they leave the land just like this waste dump. And so Israel, in verse 6, cries out to God for help. However, uh, it doesn't appear as though they're crying out a cry of repentance, but just for a, God, make my life easier. Stop them from doing this. It's kind of that kind of cry. And this appears to be the case because in verses 7 through 10, God sends this, this unnamed prophet. He's not named, but he sends them to Israel to remind them, here's why you're in the situation you're in. Let me come to you. I want to send this prophet to you and to remind you of here's who I am. Here's what I've done for you. And here's why you're enslaved. It's because of your sin, your rebellion, because you have disobeyed me. And so that's the context that Israel's finding themselves in when we pick it up in verse 11. Yet the rest of the chapter that we read displays God's abundant mercy and God's abundant grace and his power and might because even though Israel doesn't really fully understand the repentance that they, they need to walk into, God still responds. God still responds to them. What good hope that is for us. That, that God's mercy and grace isn't dependent on my perfect response, but on God's initiating act of love, grace, mercy. This is what we're seeing here in the life of Israel. And so God sees the plight of the people he loves, his chosen people, and he responds once again by raising up this unlikely hero, only to show that it's not, your, your salvation is not in any mere mortal man. It's in me. He's continually drawing the Israelites' attention to this. Let me give you this weak, mighty warrior that's going to deliver you to show that it's actually I'm who, who is doing this. So like I said just a, a moment ago, the, the remainder of Gideon's story that we're going to read through the rest of today and in the next couple of weeks is going to be this, this trajectory, this trajectory from, from fear to courage, from fear to faith. So how did God bring him there? And, and how, do, how, how does God bring us along that path as well from fear and weakness to courage and strength? 
That's where I look at today. Three things, three steps that God does, that God works in Gideon's heart that we must see as well so as to move from a place of fear to a place of courage that's in the Lord. Number one, from the text, we're going to see that we need to know who your God is. We need to know who God is. We've spent this morning singing and reminding ourselves and one another of who our God is. He's great. He is great. In verses 11 through 24, we're introduced to Gideon in this uh, pretty remarkable way. Uh, The the text says that this angel of the Lord uh, uh, appears to Gideon. Now, If you remember from several weeks ago now, when when we were in Judges chapter 2, we see this angel of the Lord on the scene again. And and, and we're seeing in uh, in chapter 2 who this angel of the Lord is. He refers and speaks to Israelites as he's the one who has delivered Israel from enslavement. So we're learning early on in the book of Judges that this is not just some mere messenger from God. But this angel of the Lord is God himself. This is what's referred to as a a, a theophany. It's an appearance. It's an appearance of God. It's an appearance of the second person of the Trinity in invisible and in bodily form prior to the incarnation. This is Christ speaking to Gideon. And and he comes to him with this, did you catch it, this this really remarkable greeting. He opens and, and appears to Gideon and says in verse 12, the Lord is with you, Oh, mighty man of valor. That's a pretty awesome greeting. I would love to get that greeting from God. I would love to have that title said of me. Hey, the Lord is with you, oh, mighty man of valor. Yes. Right? There's just something in. There's some, there's some gusto to that greeting. But, but then we, when we read from that point forward, it seems like every word that comes out of Gideon's mouth is like the complete opposite of what you would expect a mighty man of valor to say. His response immediately to this greeting from God is whiny. He's whining. He's, he's complaining. It's also a response, if you look at it, a response that fails to believe in the promises of God, fails to fully recognize who God is. You see, look again at verse 13. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now, now the Lord has forsaken us. He's given us into the hand of of Midian. And, And then we see the angel of the Lord respond to this whiny complaint. And he says, Gideon, go. Go, I'm sending you to save Israel. Go in this might of yours, O mighty man of valor, pulling upon that title once again, to which Gideon responds in verse 15, it's almost like this, me? Right? How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan, it's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. See, here's what's, what's going on. God appears to Gideon, and, and I love this. He, he speaks to Gideon with words of who he will be. He's speaking to words to him of who I'm going to draw you into. We talked about this a bit last week, the work that God is doing in our lives of progressive sanctification, that he is at work in our lives, forming us, 
molding us, shaping us into the people that he calls us to be, that he's, he's constantly at work in our lives. Uh, I, I'm reminded right here in this moment, it's not my notes, but in, in Ephesians 1, speaks to us as, as, as children, as those who have this inheritance, but he calls us holy and blameless in his sight. And I look at that and say, I'm not holy and I'm not blameless in God's sight. I've got lots of junk in my life that completely negates that title. But yet God speaks it to me and speaks over those of us who are in Christ to who he's bringing us to be and who he sees us as, not because we are, but because we're in Christ. And this is what he's drawing us into. This is the work that God's always doing and at work in our lives. He's molding us and shaping us into the person that he's going to bring us to be. Even here, Gideon believes things that are wrong about God, that that God's forsaken his children. You've forsaken us. Well, no, he doesn't. God never abandons his children. They fail to obey. They fail to enter into the, 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 the covenant with God and fulfill it and obey it. And so God sovereignly hands them over to their enemies, not so that they would be destroyed, not so that they would be abandoned, but so that they would repent, so that they would cry out to him. See, God is so sovereign and so in control of all things that he'll even use our suffering where it feels as though he's abandoned us. He has not, but he'll even use our difficulty and our trials and our suffering to shape us and mold us, that he is present in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. He does not forsake his children. He's constantly at work in our lives. But, but here in the, in, in the context of Gideon, this is, this is the beginning point, the beginning part of the trajectory of where God is going to lead him. He's saying, I'm going to lead you to be this mighty man of valor. But you're not there yet, Gideon. You're not there yet. But it's got to begin somewhere. It's got to begin somewhere. And so God, slowly, methodically, and, and what, one thing I just love about God is he's so patient. He is so patient. And here he's bringing Gideon along, Gideon along to where he needs him to be. See, the, the first step we see of God's divine work is in verse 16 where the Lord looks to him and comes to him and says, listen, I know you're weak. I know you can't do it, but I will be with you. I will be with you. That's a mic drop moment in Gideon's life. That's all you need, Gideon. I'm with you. I don't care how weak you are. I don't care what tribe you've come from. I'm with you. See, what God is doing here is, is, is slowly opening his eyes, Gideon's eyes, to see him for who he truly is. Because right now, Gideon is just too internally focused. That's what happens. When, when we are internally focused, our response is whining. Our response is complaining when we are looking only internally. Isn't that what Gideon's doing? How can I do this? I'm not strong. I'm weak. My life is difficult. Why has all this happened to me? Gideon sees problems, but he's not yet seeing the source of strength for the solution to the problems. He's only looking internally. And that's what God is going to slowly draw out. Yes, Gideon, you can't do this but I'm with you. That's all you need to know. See, but God reveals even more. Because in verses 17 through 24, Gideon says, okay, I need a sign. Okay, it's it's kind of the mantra of Gideon's life. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. Show me that this is really who you are, that you are the one talking to me. God, God, give me a sign and 
God gives him a sign. He consumes, if you saw in verses 17 through 24, Gideon goes and prepares this, this meal and brings it to him. Uh, and, and so the angel of the Lord says, put it on that, that rock. And, 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 and this angel of the Lord consumes it with fire. Somehow in that moment, in that moment, Gideon realizes really to a, a fuller, in, in a fuller way, who he's actually speaking to. He, he recognizes in that moment he is speaking face-to-face with God because his response in that moment is absolute fear and terror. In verse 22, when he, when he thinks, I'm about to be destroyed. I'm about to be destroyed. I've just come face-to-face with the holy, and I can't be here. And he feels and fears that he is about to be wiped out. But it's in this moment of absolute terror in Gideon's heart, that God comforts him and says in verse 23, peace be to you. Do not fear. You see, up, up to this moment, Gideon's greatest fear, because it was so internally focused, was the Midianites, all, what was coming upon him. But, but now he's come face to face with a holy God, and he thinks, I'm done. I'm done. Yet God says, no, you're not. You're not done. You're safe with me, I'm with you. You're safe. I'm your peace. And that word peace, he's referring to, I'm your refuge. I'm your refuge. He's saying to Gideon, you don't need to fear the enemy any longer. Why? Because I'm with you. And in me, you find peace. In me, you find your refuge. Gideon saw God as this consuming fire, yet also at the same time saw him as one in whom he finds his refuge. It was God's way of saying, you don't need to fear anything if I'm with you. If I'm with you, nothing to fear. This is God drawing Gideon's heart to say, know who I am. Know who your God is. This is what begins to move us from being fearful to courageous. If God is with us, what is there to fear? Yet secondly, as this trajectory continues on, the second thing we see that God does in the life of Gideon is he tells him to tear down the idols which is our instruction, tear down the idols. In, in verses 25 through 32, we see this next step in moving Gideon along this path. He says, go pull down. Pull down is the, is the, the word used, but this is really, really strong language. Really strong language. It's, it's meaning, Gideon, go to where these idols are and destroy them, annihilate them. Uh, it, it's referring to this idea of bringing, bring them down to ruin. All right, so Baal is set up, and he says, go bring Baal to ruin. The people of Israel were worshiping a false god. They were worshiping these false gods that could do nothing for them. In fact, if we want to say that the only power that Baal actually had, even though he had none, but the only power that idolatry has, that, that idols have over us, that sin has over us, the only power they have is, is that they bring enslavement. That's the only power that they have, is that they enslave you. And so God says to Gideon, I'm with you. Know who I am, and, and freedom is coming. What, what I'm offering you and the people is, is grace and mercy and this unending joy. And so, so go tear down that which is enslaving you right now from those things. See, freedom comes through the, uh, the annihilation of idolatry. It comes through the annihilation of idolatry. If we're going to be bold in the Lord, strong in the Lord, courageous in the Lord, then the Lord must be 
what, what our hearts most desperately desire. Just as Gideon was not going to be able to lead the people of Israel into freedom and into victory while they were, while they were still clinging to the gods of the pagan nations, we will not have any impact in the lives of our families, in the lives of our friends, in our neighborhoods, in the lives of our community, in our nation, and to the ends of the earth if we are saying with our mouths one thing, but with our lives we're revealing something else. We cannot say, Jesus is Lord, when our lives actually reveal that, no, something else has greater control of our hearts and our affections. So, so if we're going to be courageous, if we're going to have any type of impact in the world today, that means that the idols of our hearts, they need to be torn down. They need to be annihilated. They need to be destroyed, and I would add, violently. And so again, what, what are the idols in your life? What consumes you? What drives you? What captivates you? What, what has a hold of your heart? Bob Thune in his book, Gospel Center Life, identifies several idols that we will struggle with. The idol of success. The idol of approval. The idol of control or the idol of reputation. The idol of security. The idol of, of pleasure. Maybe it's the idol of recognition or the idol of respect. And you might be thinking, we, we've talked about idolatry and judges already. We've talked about these things several times. Why are we bringing this up again? Absolutely, we have talked about idolatry. And here's why. Here's why it keeps coming up. Because it keeps coming up in the lives of the Israelites. Continually coming up over and over and over again in their life. As John Calvin said, our, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And so we must continually be on guard and identifying our, the next idol that our heart is churning out because one's coming. And so we need to continually be guarding and identifying what those are and destroying and bringing to ruin anything that is taking our, our heart, our mind, our affections off of our great God and King. See, we love the things of this world far too much and we are seduced by the things of this world far too easily far too easily. So before Israel, before Gideon could be free, before they could be courageous, they had to let go. They had to let go of the idols that were controlling them. It's, it's just like a, 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 a little child that reaches into a jar to grab something, grab a cookie, grab something that they want, that their, hearts, their heart desires, but then they can't, they can't get it out of the jar without letting go first of whatever they're holding on to. And, and so they reach in to grab something they, that they think will bring them great joy and delight, but it enslaves them, it captures them. And so the only way for them to be free is they have to let go of whatever they're holding to inside that jar. That's, that's what God is calling getting to. You've got to let go of these idols if you want to fully be free. And so we have to identify those idols and tear them down. But then also note this in the text, that when we reject the gods of this world. How's the world going to respond? When we reject the world, when we reject the gods of this world, it's going to respond back bitterly because that's what happened to Gideon. The people won his head. How dare you tear down the altar? How dare you reject and betray the gods of the world? I mean, take that into our context today. What are we seeing in our current cultural climate? Any rejection any rejection of the culture's philosophy, 
any rejection of the culture's need for affirmation and acceptance, any, any pushback and, and mention of God's good design for human beings. Here's God's good design for human flourishing. Here's God's good design for men and women, for male and for female. Here's God's good design for where we find freedom. It's through repentance and faith. Anytime we push that, oh, oh man, expect attack. Expect attack. Why? Because the God of this culture is being attacked. The God of this culture is self-autonomy. And the second great commandment that comes along with it is, is, is that you must affirm my view of self. That is the world in which we are living. That's the world in which we find ourselves. And so we're going to be attacked when we reject, when we tear down the false gods of our culture. See, our greatest temptation as human beings is that we want to see ourselves as God. We want to be God. And we want to be God so that we don't have to submit to anything or submit to anyone. And when we see ourselves as God, then it makes sense why then we see in our world today why then there's such a demand on everyone else to fall in line. That's, that's what's happening in our world today, in the human heart. And so to move from a place of fear to a place of courage, we've got to tear down the idols of our heart, sin which enslaves us, and gladly submit to the one true king who reigns. It's only there where you will find true peace, true joy, salvation, and freedom. Tear down the idols. Thirdly, thirdly, to move, to move from fear to courage, we must lastly recognize God's overwhelming presence. Recognize God's overwhelming presence. It's what we see God doing with Gideon in the, the remainder of this chapter. In verse 33, there's, there's a battle. It's on the horizon. Gideon has done enough over time now to cause a stir. The enemy, the enemy is mobilizing for an attack Again, this is, this is going to be what when, happens when we live on mission for the glory of God. All right? the, the world hates God. Therefore, it's going to attack anyone who seeks to spread the knowledge of the glory of God's name. But again, what do we, what do we see through all of this as we see God's presence in the midst of the battle that is on the horizon? In verse 34, it, it says of Gideon that the spirit of the Lord clothed him. The spirit of the Lord clothed him. Gideon. So get, get that imagery in your mind. He's being clothed with God's presence, his spirit, his power. It's with him. And verses 36 through 40, Gideon, here we go, wants another sign. He wants another sign. It's maybe one, if you've grown up in the church, heard the story of Gideon. It's probably the, the story of Gideon that you're maybe most familiar with. Gideon, before going into battle, he lays out a fleece over, overnight and he asks God, Okay, God, if you're, if you're with us, if you're with me, if you are going to save through my hand, would you do this? Would you, would you cause this fleece to be wet in the morning while the ground all around it is dry? Well, God does it. The next morning, Gideon goes out. He picks up the fleece. He wrings it out, and it fills a bowl. It's, it's soaking wet while the ground all around it is dry. He asks God again to, to, to reveal a sign, to show again. He says, don't be angry with me. I want to ask one more time. We do the opposite this time, though. He says, if, I, if I'm supposed to be the one who saves Israel, if you're with us, leading us into battle, now this next morning, let the, the fleece be dry. Let the ground all around it be wet. And that's exactly what God does the second time. Now, what's going on here? What's going on here? 
Many people have criticized Gideon for doing this, for, for a lack of faith, whatever it may be. However, I want us to look at maybe from this angle. What, what Gideon was after was, was affirmation of God's presence with him. He was after God's uh, a recognition and acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over the nations, God's sovereignty over creation, God's sovereignty over all things. And, and so keep in mind, keep in mind, as one commentary says about this, this aspect here, he says, this commentary says this, that Gideon was seeking to understand the nature of God. He, he did not have the, the means of grace that we have now, meaning he didn't have the word. He didn't have baptism and the Lord's Supper, and he didn't have Christian fellowship. I would even add to this, this that Gideon was not able to look back as we are today to, to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as, as evidence of God's power over evil and over sin and over death. And so this commentary says, he says he was instead addressing the, the places where his faith was weak, where his faith was uninformed. So what Gideon did is not, we need to understand too, that what Gideon did was not prescriptive for our lives. We don't, we don't live in this way. We don't live in such a way that we only make decisions by testing God, by testing him such as, uh, okay, God, uh, if I'm, I'm supposed to do whatever the big decision is in, in your life, um, and you're thinking about this maybe as you're driving, sometimes we'll say, okay, I need to hit all the green lights. When I hit all the green lights, if all the lights turn green, then that's going to be a sign from you that I'm supposed to do whatever that decision is. Or, or if I'm supposed to do this, okay, I want to hear a rumble of thunder in this exact moment. I'll take that as you speaking to me and saying, yes, go, go for it. Like we... We, this isn't prescriptive. We don't operate this way. We don't test God in this way. Well, why? Because we have God's word. Because we have God's spirit. Because we have God's people who will speak wisdom into our lives rooted in God's word. We, we can look back to the death and the resurrection of Christ to know that God is faithful and that God is good and that God is with us. Again, Gideon was asking God, I need to know you're, you're with me as we go into battle. That was what he was asking. We don't need testing for that because God has shown and revealed he's with us. You only need to look to the cross. The cross reveals that God is, is with us. He was needing reassurance of God's presence in that moment. And God graciously responded a couple times. This was how God was bringing Gideon along from fear to faith, from fear to courage. You see, you and I today in moments of fear, moments of worry, moments of anxiety, we don't need to look for signs. We don't need to look for signs. We only need to look at the cross. We only need to look at Jesus. And, and it reveals his love, his grace, his mercy, his presence. That's the hope in which we rest this morning. That's, that's who we sing about. That's, that's the source of our strength, of our courage, of our might, not from within us, not from any works that we've done, but in the work that Christ has done through his life, his death, his resurrection. This is the joy that the Christians walk in, the joy and hope that we celebrate in, that Jesus laid down his life for you, for me, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our betrayal, and that through faith in the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, you can receive acceptance, you can be justified before God, seen right 
and accepted in his sight. That's the hope in which we stand, in which we rest. That is the source of our courage. Brothers and sisters, rest in that hope. Recognize that hope. Believe this gospel. For those in here this morning that do not know Christ, who have not yet turned from your sin, repented, and turned in faith to Jesus, this is the beginning point of coming from fear and worry and weakness into a life of freedom, of courage, and strength, and might that's found not in you, but in our God. This is the invitation to all of us here this morning where we can find our strength and our courage. To close, in 1940, during World War II, uh, the, the German army, uh, they had begun their invasion of France. And, and they, had, they had forced hundreds of thousands of, of British and, and French troops to the beaches of, of northern France with nothing but, but water in front of them and, and the enemy behind them. And so they were at this last port in all of northern France that had not yet been taken over by the Nazis. And, and this port was called Dunkirk. They were completely surrounded. It appeared as though uh, a major, major defeat was about to hit the Allied forces, who at that point in the war had still not had much success. And so the, the British commanders, the British uh, general, they were, they were desperately wanting to get their men off of that beach. They knew they needed to, but the early projections were that their best hope, they thought that maybe, maybe we would be able to evacuate thirty to 40,000 troops but that meant that was still going to leave about 350,000 men on that shore to be either be captured or killed. It would have been a devastating blow to the war effort. However, there was a, a pretty remarkable thing that happened during this evacuation. Hundreds of civilian boats joined in this operation alongside of the British Navy in getting those men off of that beach. And, and so these, these tiny little boats would have been, if they were gone on their own, they would have been immediately destroyed by the German army. Like they did not stand a chance. They were little fishing boats, little fishing trawlers. However, when they went into this battle, they, they were protected by these massive Navy ships that were able to, to keep that enemy at bay. And these tiny little fishing boats, because of them surrounded by a, a greater army, they were able to methodically work their way up to the beach, get to places where these Navy ships actually couldn't reach, and they were able to bring these men to safety one after another. And when all was said and done, they had evacuated over 338,000 British and French troops. This became a, a, a pretty major turning point in, in the war for the, and just for the overall morale of the British army. These little unassuming boats, they made this huge impact in the war effort. And it wasn't because they in and of themselves were mighty but because they were a, there was a stronger source that was protecting them, that was being their place of refuge so they could get into the battle where they needed to be. That, that gave them the courage to do what by themselves they would have never been able to do. You see, you and I are like these, these tiny little fishing boats that are, that's up against a seemingly overwhelming and overpowering enemy. On our own, we're going to be devoured. We're going to be devoured, but we're not on our own. We're not on our own. What, just as God told you, I'm with you. You're not on your own. Through faith, you are held safe and secure in a great and mighty God. We have been clothed with the Spirit of God. Jesus has already charged the shoreline. 
He's broken through the enemy lines. He's defeated the power of the enemy. That should fill us with great courage, courage to live on mission, courage to speak graciously, humbly, yet boldly about the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. So we need to know who our God is, tear down the idols, and then recognize God's overwhelming presence with you. Church, be courageous. Let's be bold. Be strong in the Lord. Let's pray.